turn in your Bibles, if you would, or in your app to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So we're in a series in the book of Acts that we just started last week. And instead of preaching like a Mother's Day sermon, I actually found a portion that was not included in our Acts plan for the rest of the year and decided, I think I want to preach on that today. So we're going to look at Acts 1, chapter, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And if you're physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? And follow along as I read aloud from Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is what the word of God says. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what I'd like to do at this time is just walk through the text I just read and see what happened, right? This is a narrative type of scripture. It's telling a story. So let's just take another look at what exactly happened in the scene, in this story that we're talking about, and then see what we can apply as modern day Christians, making that move from being informed to hopefully being transformed by the renewing of our minds as we reflect upon God's word and seek to apply it. So pick it up in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So this term, Sabbath day's journey, it's really only found here in the entire 
Bible. You might say, well, what is that? Well, it refers to the maximum distance that they were allowed to travel on the Sabbath according to rabbinic law. Now, we don't really know when that practice began, but we do know that during Israel's encampment, as you read throughout the Old Testament, the furthest away a tent was from the tabernacle was about 2,000 cubits. And you say, oh, 2,000 cubits, I get it now. So it's about a half to three quarters of a mile away. That's what 2,000 cubits would have would have would have equaled up to in our day and age. So the thinking is that although people are supposed to remain in their homes on the Sabbath, they could at least travel that far in order to worship without transgressing the law. So when Luke said they traveled from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem and it was about a Sabbath day's journey, he's basically saying it was about half, maybe three quarters of a mile. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Now, most houses had upper rooms. Perhaps your house has an upper room. And these upper rooms would be used for a variety of purposes. Now, we don't know definitively from the text of Scripture, but it's kind of assumed, always has been assumed, that this is the same upper room in which Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with the Twelve before he was crucified. Now, I'm just curious, show of hands, how many of you would, you would say, I'm, I'm a sentimental person, right? Like you, there, there's things that, oh, this reminds me of that. Oh, I remember when we went there. Oh, that brings about an emotion. I walk into a room and I remember the last time I was here. Or, oh, I remember the last time we went to the beach. We were, we, we were, we had this, the kids were so little, whatever. Stuff like that. That you just connect things and it brings about a feeling in your heart, even in your stomach. How many of you would say, yeah, I'm sentimental. I make those connections pretty well. Right, okay. So like, for example, for me, I, I think I'm pretty sentimental. So today is Mother's Day. So naturally, I'm thinking of my, go ahead, mom, right? She's like a mom to me. So I'm thinking of her and looking forward to calling her. I'm also probably thinking of who my wife, who is a mother to my own children and celebrating the day with her. But I'm also thinking of this day, this very day, this very Mother's Day, 2001. Because this day, May 12, 2001, was also Mother's Day and the day I met my now wife. So it's not only Mother's Day. It's not only May 12th. It's all together. The stars have aligned. I'm like, oh, this is a really, really, really big deal. And Sarah's like, babe, you got to go to church. I mean, you're going to be late. We can't. So she's not exactly super sentimental. She's not hard-hearted, but it wouldn't, wouldn't occur to her to make that connection. So I, I carry the team. I, I, I do it for us. I make sure that, I mean, it's a, it's a labor of love, but that's just how I tend to think. I can remember, oh, wow, it was that day it was May 12th. May 12th fell on Mother's Day. Oh, and I'm not going to cry about it, but it does occur to me. You know, you who have hearts like me, you know what I'm talking about. So it does occur to me, and I'm not bitter, but it does occur to me that this was what had happened on that day. In the event this upper room is the same as the upper room the disciples were in previously, in Luke's gospel, think about what it would be like to walk in there. I mean, this place would be a place where they had lots of memories, right? A place of celebration during the Passover turned Last Supper. A place of hiding in fear after Jesus was crucified as the disciples feared for their lives. Oh my gosh, they got him. We're surely next. I mean, we're, we're his followers. It would also be the same place that Jesus would have appeared to the disciples after he rose. So there would be joy and fear and confusion as the resurrection is probably not something fully comprehended by them at that time, would you fully comprehend somebody who had just risen from the dead? 
a loved one whom you miss, whom you mourned, but you're glad to see them, but they're still the walking dead, which is kind of weird, but you're excited, but I still see the holes in their hands from when they were crucified. I mean, just all those emotions flooding into them as they're in the upper room during that time. And now it's the place where the disciples would gather together after Jesus ascended into heaven, which Pastor Brad will talk about next week, Lord willing. But suffice it to say, this place had a lot of memories. This place, it would be pretty hard to miss the feelings and the memories that would have happened. I think even Sarah would, would, have, would have known the memories and the feelings that, that were associated with this room, given what has happened in the last, what, 50 days or so. So there they were, uh, and along with the women. We don't know who that is, but probably Mary Magdalene, Mary Martha Salome, we don't know. Um, so now we're up to verse 13. Now, I don't know if there is anyone... I'm, I was wondering if there was a, a kid who might be able to help me with a little illustration. If anybody could. It's very simple. It won't be embarrassing. It's really just counting. I was wondering if you could count for me because I need to count more than the fingers I have. So I am either going to take off my shoe or maybe you could help. Is there anyone here who might be able to come up and help me for a minute? It won't take long. I'll pay you. I'm going to close in prayer. <laughs> so on and up. There we go. Excellent. Cool. All right. Hey, man. Thanks for helping. What's your name? Okay. Hey, Jacob. I'm Peter. I'm the pastor. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to. So, so how many? Have a seat. How many? Um, how many? Uh, you, they can't see. Let's stand. How many, do you know how many disciples Jesus had? How many apostles followed him? 12. Very good. Okay, 12. So here's what I need you to do. I am holding my Bible, and I'm just not that coordinated. I turned 40 earlier this year. So I need you to use your fingers and count. I'm going to read off the apostles who were there. I just need you to count. Can you do that? Just use your fingers. That's all I need you to do. That's really all I need you to do. Here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? All right. So this is not a big deal. Just, uh, just don't mess up. All right. You ready? Here we go. Peter and Jayon, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, what are we up to? Seven, okay. Eight? Oh, that's eight, sorry, eight. <laughs> You're good, it's my fault. James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, that's James, not Alphaeus, okay, God said. Simon, what are we up to? All right, I'll help. Judas, the son of James. Now hold up all your hands. All, all of them. Eleven. Eleven. Okay. There were how many disciples? But we only counted. Eleven. Right. So we're in a little bit of trouble. We've lost one. Right? Okay, thanks for helping me. Go back to your seat. Would you give him a round of applause? Thank you. So there's eleven. Eleven. And in those days, uh, verse 15 says this, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, okay, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, would you look in your Bibles at verse 16, because I want to take a little bit of a side note, but just point out something to you that I think is important. Okay, when Peter says, 
brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now look, verse uh, 16, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. That's got to be one of the clearest references in all the Bible to the inspiration of scripture. Do you see that? So I want you to understand that when you, uh, when you think through, what does it mean that God inspired the words of Scripture, that the words of Scripture is God-breathed as we read in 2 Timothy 3? That's a great explanation right there. Verse 16. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by who? By a, a human, the mouth of David, concerning a real-life event that he prophesied about. It's a great example of the inspiration of Scripture. The Holy Spirit spoke it by David, which was the mouthpiece, but who spoke it? It was God, the Holy Spirit. So it's just a great little thing that maybe to mark or to say, ooh, that's a great example. When I'm wondering or when I'm trying to explain to somebody, how was, the, how was the Bible written? What do you mean it was inspired by God? That's it right there. That's a great example. But anyway, back to our text. Verse 17, uh, Peter says, For he, speaking of Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Then there's a parenthetical statement added by Luke. So Luke stops quoting Peter and then explains to you something, which we'll get to later. Uh, but if you look in verse 20, uh, he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Peter reminds everyone that the word of God requires there to be 12. And as you just saw from our little counting example, and thank you very much, uh, we don't have 12, we have only what? How many? 11. So, but the word of God required that there be 12. So Peter reminds everybody of that. And then starts the process by listing some requirements of the person that they say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We need to narrow down the field a bit. We need to pick someone to replace Judas. And since there were about 120 people there, it would be good for us to narrow this field down pretty quickly. So the first requirement was that the person must have witnessed Jesus' entire earthly ministry. So some think, well, why couldn't Paul be the 12th? There you go. Because right there, Peter said, let's do this. We want someone who is with Jesus for his entire earthly ministry to replace Judas, okay? We're trying to get someone like, it's, it's as apples to apples replacement as possible. Uh, secondly, the person must have seen the resurrected Christ. So the resurrection was a crucial theme and very central to the apostles' teaching, as we'll see as we work through the book of Acts. So they wanted another firsthand witness of this. So verse 23 says that narrowed it down to two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Verse 24 says they did what? It says, and they what? They prayed. They prayed. What did they pray? You don't have to guess that. It says it right there. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. They committed the matter to God. They did their best. They came right up to that point of decision and then committed the matter to God. And they told him exactly what they needed. They said, show us, right? They didn't even say please. Show us which one. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Not show us which one of these two which would benefit us. Show us which one of these two what? Which you have chosen. Let us know your will for us. So they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And that was that. He was number 12 and was numbered among them. And that's the last time we hear of him. Casting lots is an Old Testament practice that was used to determine God's will. Kind of like rolling dice or drawing stores, but probably, probably closest, honestly, to flipping a coin. That's probably the closest thing that we have in our day and age to casting lots. So, heads for Matthias, tails for Barsabas. Lord, show us which one you want. 
heads it is, which is good because Barsabas sounds way too much like Barabbas. So it's just too soon, too soon. So Matthias it is. God shows his will that Matthias is to be number 12, and Matthias replaces Judas. See, it's not like when we flip a coin, though, right? We flip a coin for fun, right? We kind of do it like my kids will do it. Like, let's see, let's best out of five or something like that. But we, we flip a coin for fun. We ought not flip a coin to find out major life decisions thinking that God is going to act through this coin toss. Okay, that was a practice that was reserved for Old Testament times and not is for us beyond this day. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So that's it. Matthias makes a very brief cameo in Acts chapter 1, and we'll see him in heaven. We, we hear nothing more about Matthias for the rest of Scripture. So now that we've been informed and we understand what's happening in the text, let's take that and see how the Lord might transform us by the renewing of our mind, right? Romans 12, 2. Let's be renewed in the spirit of our minds, Ephesians 4, 23, and see what we might learn from what happened in the text. So for that, please go back to uh, verse 18. Verse 18, Acts chapter 1, verse 18. You see the quotations end at the end of verse 17, right? So Luke stops quoting what Peter said and inserts his parenthetical statement to let us know what happened to Judas. So he's saying, yeah, we're down one, and Luke's like, and let me tell you, okay, it was not pretty. Let me tell you what happened. Now, we don't have time to look there today, but if we were to look in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, we're told that Judas uh, saw that Jesus was condemned after he had already handed him over, and so he changed his mind and said that he had sinned and betrayed innocent Blood. Now, changed his mind saying, oh, wait, I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to be involved in this. Not that he was sorrowful, not that he had a godly sorrow, but he is sorry for what he did, for how it affects him. He has betrayed innocent blood. And the Jewish leaders basically look at him and say, yeah. Like, what do you want us to do? That's your problem. Yeah, you've, you've done that. So Judas takes the money, he throws it down in the temple and leaves. And the Jewish leaders pick up the money, right, because it's Money, So they pick up the money, but they have enough moral sense to say we can't put this money in the treasury because it's blood money. So we can't do that. So what are we going to do with this money? Ah, we will purchase a field with it. Okay, so we will go and purchase a field. And it's a field where they would bury strangers. So people who died and had no family, no friends, nothing. So that's where Judas hung himself. And that's all in Matthew 27. Now in Luke, uh, in, in Acts 1 and verses 18 and following, Luke adds a bit more graphic detail. And so it says this man acquired a field. That's what it means he acquired a field, right? Because it was his money he threw down. He didn't then leave sorrowful, try to buy himself a field, and then hang himself. He acquired a field because it was bought with the money that was given to him, even though he himself did not buy it. Acts 1.18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, right? So happy Mother's Day, right? So we know he hung himself from Matthew and Luke, and uh, Luke tells us that he fell head first, and also that his head was swollen, actually, in the Greek. And having done so, his body split open in the middle, and his bowels, his insides, gushed out. So once again, a reminder to you that Luke is a historian and has a great attention to detail. So what can we learn from this, other than the fact that it's a really gruesome story, right? What do we learn other than, oh, I guess that's what happened. Like, that sounds really traumatic. That sounds really terrible. Well, point number one. Judas isn't in hell for handing Jesus over to be crucified. 
Judas isn't in hell for committing suicide. Judas is in hell for the same reason anyone else will be there, and that's his lack of love for Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's an important point to make because you can get so caught up in the drama surrounding Judas and being like, oh my gosh. First of all, if you read earlier in the Gospels, he's in charge of the money. He's in charge of the money bag, and he's taken some out of that for his, for his own self. He's pilfering, is what the Bible says. And then he's involved in a conspiracy theory to hand over the Son of God to the authorities, and then he got money. Of course, this dude's in hell. So you could get caught up in somebody like that or somebody like an Adolf Hitler who committed Un, like, like innumerable crimes, countless crimes against humanity, killing literally like just millions of people and say, oh, of course they're in hell because of what they did. But I just want to remind you that they're not in hell because of what they did. They're in hell because what they did show their heart that they did not truly love Jesus Christ. And that's a very big difference. See, people may not know the Bible. They may not even be believers, but they probably know something about Judas. I have lots of unsaved family and friends who are not, they're not Christians. They might like, like, like pitter around in church maybe every once in a while. They don't know their Bibles, but they know Judas. They know he betrayed Jesus or know he was paid off or they know he killed himself. Now, plus we all come from different places, different backgrounds, different upbringing. I'm curious how many of you knew someone, not heard of someone or worked with, but you knew, you knew someone, you worked with them, you lived close to them, you went to school with them. How many of you knew someone named Judas? You're like, oh, I grew up with a guy named Judas. Exactly. Right? Like none of you. Fun fact. In 2014, the estimated population in the U.S. was 318.6 million. In 2014, the amount of people registered with the first name of Judas? 11. 11. That's actually 11 more than I would have thought. I got to be honest with you. Like just, just basically knowing, like what is that parent thinking? We'll show him, see how he likes this. We shall call him Judas. Look at their faces. Yeah, I said Judas. Like, anyway. Now, you can get caught up in the drama and the details, but don't make the mistake of thinking that Judas is in hell for any of that. Judas is in hell today for the same reason that anyone else is. He turned his back on Jesus. He rejected him. He did not love him. 1 Corinthians ends in chapter 16, verses 21 and following in your outline. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be what? Let him be accursed. Uh, Judas did not have faith in Christ. He loved himself more than Jesus, so much so that he would betray him for a small, very small sum of money. But it's not the money that lands Judas in hell, nor the commiserating with the Jewish leaders, nor the suicide. His suicide was just the tragic climax in his life of having rejected Jesus, and a rejection of Christ, a turning of your back on Christ, your one and only hope for salvation, that was his ticket to hell, and quite frankly, that will be anyone's ticket to hell if they do the same, including you. I mean, look, Judas made a commitment no less than the rest of the 12. I think sometimes we get this like feeling like there's 11 people just with Jesus, and then there's Judas just like kind of picking up the slack, and everyone's like, come on, Judas, and he's like, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm just thinking evil back here. Give me a second. Like, that's not what Judas did. Judas was one of the 12. He gave up, just, he gave up everything to, that he had to follow Christ. We see no reference in Scripture to say that he got in easy. He, he was just like Matthew or Peter or John or any one of them. 
In fact, Judas is counted among them as Jesus was sending them out to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and to heal people. Luke chapter 9, you can see in your outline. And he, Jesus, called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Look again in your outline, Luke 9 and verse 1. And he called the how many together? The 12. Judas would have been among them. Don't think of Judas as some half-baked disciple. He was one of the 12. We have no reason to believe that he didn't teach, that he didn't heal, that he himself didn't cast out demons. Right? It's not that Peter's preaching and Andrew's casting out demons and he's over there like trying to heal someone because he's Judas. He didn't really get the, the Holy Spirit. He was given the same power, the same commissioning in Luke 9 as the other 11. But as committed and as gifted as he was, he lacked love and ultimately lacked perseverance for Christ. Judas had, uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, even though your outline says 10, that's my fault. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, we're told Lazarus' body stunk because it had been in there four days. Judas would have smelled that. Judas watched that. Judas saw Lazarus come walking out of the grave. When Jesus fed thousands, Judas helped distribute the food. When Judas watched Jesus command a storm to go away, and it did. All the teachings we read about, Judas heard firsthand. Imagine I'm walking with Judas for a minute. Okay, we're just walking, just, just me and Judas. And he's like, what have you been reading lately? And I said, oh, actually, I just, I just actually read the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I really like that. Judas would have been like, yeah. Yeah, I was there, right? He would have dropped that mic right then. Like, he, would, he was there. It's not like he just read about it, heard about it. He was there. And because he was there, he heard Jesus say that there was a broad road and there was a narrow road and that he should choose the narrow one. He heard Jesus say to not lay up for himself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and to do unto others as you would want them to do to you. He would have also heard Jesus say that you can tell a tree by its fruit and that every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit, Matthew 7 and verse 17. And he would have heard Jesus say that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, Matthew 7 and verse 21. And he would have heard that Jesus would say later on that everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. Now, is there any application for us to draw from this, especially on Mother's Day? Don't name your kid Judas. It's a small thing you may want to write down. But let me ask you this. Whether it's a friend, a family member, a child, or a parent, someone you love, let me ask you a question. If you can call to mind someone right now, someone right now, who you grieve, even though they're alive, because they've wandered away from Christ or they just don't love Jesus. You grieve for this person, even though they're alive, but they've either wandered away from the faith 
or for whatever reason don't have that love for Christ that you have, if there's someone that comes to your mind right now, would you raise your hand? Okay, keep them up. Just look around. down. When are you tempted to ever maybe blame yourself for somebody else's hard heart? When do you ever think back and think, I missed it. I, I had, an, I, had I, I took advantage of these opportunities, but I know I missed these, or I could have done more. There must have been more that I could do. Maybe I was a bad example. Maybe I'm a lousy teacher. Maybe I should have picked a different church or a different youth group or a different school or a different neighborhood. Or maybe I should have invited them one more time. I just, I, I blew it. Is there someone whose unbelief you're tempted to think might be in a small way, in the recesses of your mind, your fault? Judas had tremendous opportunities afforded him. Here's the application I draw. I don't think Jesus missed an opportunity with Judas. Does that make sense? I don't think Jesus was a poor example to Judas. I don't think Jesus could have done more for Judas than he did, what with him dying on the cross for sinners. I think Jesus was the best example Judas could have ever had. I think Jesus was the best teacher Judas could have ever had. There was no better environment, no better group of people to be in that could have afforded him the opportunity to choose Christ than to have been in front of and living with and dining with Jesus Christ. And so this narrative of Scripture, watching Judas's end, reminds me, particularly as a parent, that I am to do my best in modeling Christ to be an example and to point people, particularly my children, to Christ. But as I do that, I do that as an act of worship to him, but the softening of their hearts is an act of God and God alone. And when I'm tempted to see sin in others that I love and care for or see a disinterest in Christ, particularly if they're within my own home, it's really easy for me to play connect the dots and think would have, could have, should have, or if only I, or that's a direct result of me missing this opportunity. That's why that person. This reminds me that I'm to do my best before the Lord and honor God in the process of my parenting, in the process of me being an example to others, in the process of you being a witness to that person at the workplace, in the process of you showing the love of Christ to that student down the hall or whom you share a classroom with. But ultimately, we do so pray, 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 praying that God would do what only God could do, and that is to call that heart out of the grave, just like he called Lazarus to come forth. Colin Smith says this, but Judas teaches us that even the best example, the most compelling evidence, and the finest teaching, the ultimate environment for incubating faith, cannot in and of themselves change the human heart. I thought that was well said. And a good reminder to me that I'm to do my very, very best. I'm to model Jesus. I'm to model Christ in whosever 
whose ever life that I have influence with, whether that's my, whether you're a parent and you're thinking about a child, whether you're a child and you're thinking about your parent, whether you're a friend to a friend or a coworker and you know that you are the only light or one of the only lights in their dark life. We honor the Lord. We pray for that person. We do our best to plant seeds of the gospel in all times, hoping and praying that God would be the one to cause those seeds to increase. Judas's story is over. Right? It's part of a historical narrative. But I was reminded... Recently, on several different occasions, that the story is still not over for so many people who I love and care for and pray for that they would come to Christ. The story isn't over for that living, breathing, moving prodigal that's on your mind and heart right now that you know not what they're doing, but they're not in church. The story's not over for your friend, your neighbor, your ex, your daughter, your son, your brother, your mom, your dad. The story isn't over. God is on the move and he reigns. And Jesus loves sinners so much that he died for them so they might have eternal life. The story's not over. Hey, let's, can we just pray just for one moment? Father in heaven, we come before you now with people, like real people, real people we love and care for, not, not hypothetical, theoretical, the lost. There's names and faces and stories that come to our mind. We're thinking like Bill is a real man. Donna's a real woman. Alice is a real girl. These are real people who have been created in your image that we long to see Come to know you. Oh God, would you do a work in their hearts? Lord, even now, would you make them aware, even like afresh and anew, would they wake from their sleep and just be like, whoa, what was that? And just know that you're there. Would they stop as they're walking through a store and just be aware of your presence? And God, would you call people into their lives to be used by you, to soften their hearts, to call them out of darkness into marvelous light? And Lord, we want you to do it because we love them, but we really want you to do it because we love you. We want to see you get the glory for bringing someone back home who is so afar off. We want to see you get the glory for calling someone out of death and destruction to life and life more abundantly. So Lord, do that. Do that for your name's sake, for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Secondly, you need to know that as 21st century Christians, we have more than the apostles ever did. So as we seek to be these witnesses, these examples, uh, these people who are signposts pointing to something greater than themselves, the light in people's lives, you might look back on the apostles and say, you know, if only I had what they had, I think it would be a lot easier. Like, if I could only do what they did, if I could say I was there when he rose, if I could say I was there when he walked on water, if I could say, no, I literally saw it, if I could say, look, I have a picture of Jesus walking on water, this happened, this is not Photoshop, this is the real deal. If only I could be that person, it would be a lot better. 
See, I said before that this is the last time we hear of Matthias, but it's also the last time we hear of casting lots. And the reason is because it's no longer necessary. We don't need to walk through life wondering what God's will is and just flipping a coin and wondering how God wants me to act in my life and flip a coin and say, okay, heads I take this job, tails I don't. All right, I guess it's for me. I'm going to go and take it. Or sometimes, so as a kid, I used to do, like you're not supposed to do this and flip coins to try to find the will of God, but I'm, I'm willing to admit I did. Did anybody else? Did you ever try to like, like, not like Ouija board stuff. I didn't do that. But I mean, just like I'm standing waiting for, I'm the only one? Fine. I'm the only one. It's fine. I don't feel weird at all now. But anyways, I'd be standing at the corner. Literally, I remember like waiting for a bus and there was a girl I really liked. And I was like, all right. Heads, I have a shot. Like heads, she likes me. Tails, I don't. Come on, God, just show me. All right, two out of three. Okay. Like, like this is not how we live our lives. None of you did that? Thank you. You didn't raise your hand. I thought I did. Oh, you're nodding? Okay, fine. All right, so me and you did this. But anyway, there's just a, like, I, I but that's not wise. That's foolishness as a, as a kid standing there waiting for his bus trying to find out the will of God when I have the will of God revealed to me right here. If I spent less time flipping my coin, less time like trying to say, okay, if I'm going to close my eyes and if, the, if I see the light turn green, I used to do this all the time. I ignore the fact that traffic lights are on a timer and thought that if I opened my eyes and the light changed and it was green, then all of a sudden I should do this. All right, it's green. Now, I wouldn't actually act on it, but this is just like what it is is lack of faith and it's me looking for God's will. It's me wondering what God would have me to do. And it's a way of me looking for a sign, which we looked at a few weeks ago. But the Bible says that what? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And that the only sign that God needed to give me was like raising his son from the dead. And that's a pretty big sign. And beyond that, I shouldn't be looking for a sign. So spoiler alert, in two weeks, Lord willing, I'm going to preach from Acts chapter 2, where we see God makes good on his promise to give the disciples the Holy Spirit, which we have with us at all times as our comfort, guide, and strength. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your what? Advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I would propose that Jesus is saying, it would be better that I leave. Better for me to not be with you and for this helper to come with you. It's to your advantage that I go away. Because God the Holy Spirit, so the, God the Son is going to go away, but God the Holy Spirit is going to come with you, and he will be with you at all times. John 14, verses 16 and following. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. Why? For he dwells with you and will be with you. Verse 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Last week, Pastor Brad reminded us of some of Jesus' last words, that power would be given to the apostles to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So you see, the people of God at that time, not having the Holy Spirit within them, the Holy Spirit hasn't come, they're used to looking at God saying, I could use you right now. And God's like, okay. So let us know, Matthias or Barsabas, the guy with the name, which one should it be? They're both good. What should it be? So heads Matthias, tails Barsabas, please, we're trusting in you. We're trusting in you to use this, this casting of lots to show us your will. Okay, it's Matthias. And in a sense, I'm sure this is 
wrong in some way. But in a sense, God's like, all right, got it? Cool, see ya. Because he didn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. God would visit his people. He would make his presence manifest. He would part the Red Sea. Don't think God didn't act on behalf of his people. But that indwelling, constant presence of God to guide and to teach and to convict and to counsel and to pray even on your behalf, that's something that is new that's going to happen as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so you and I, we don't need to be flipping coins to find out God's will. We don't need to do that. It's no longer necessary to invoke God's help through a coin flip because they had God's help in the Holy Spirit, which we're going to hear about in a few weeks. And so do all Christians. No more like crapshoots for Jesus as we're trying to see like, okay, come on, big money, big money, big money. Oh, well. We have the constant, never-changing, always speaking to us, Word of God. And so many times people say, I just don't know what God would have me do. It's like, he said a lot. Have you looked? Like, there's a lot here to look in. Like, maybe if you've read this and you don't understand a part of it or you can't call something to mind, that's one thing. But I'm very, very much concerned personally with how many people walk around acting, acting as if the Christian life is kind of like a prayer and a coin toss. I don't really know what to do here. When we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and all that pertains to life and godliness right here. The Holy Spirit to help me call God to mind, to help me pray, to pray on my behalf when I don't even know what to pray. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, right? And then to call God's truth to mind because I've been feeding on it. Not because I'm an expert in it, not because I read it for three hours a day or for whatever. It's not a time, but I feed on it regularly. And God's going to help me remember it and call it to my mind. I take time to be with God, and he calls it to my mind. But in reality, sometimes people are like, well, yeah, that's the book I take out on Sundays, and I pray before meals. But then as far as life is concerned, when I have a big decision, it's as if we don't have the Spirit and don't have the Word of God at all. We don't hear of Matthias again. We don't hear of the coin toss again. But you know what we do hear of again? The word of God is unstoppable, and his Holy Spirit works within the lives of his people. Praise his name. Don't read the book of Acts and say, man, look at them go. I wish I could do what they did. I literally think they would be coming back to you saying, you guys have it. This is awesome. I mean, this is awesome. You have the Holy Spirit that we have. Uh, plus, you have access to the Word of God at all times. You have it on your phones. We don't even have phones. I'm not even sure what a phone is, says an apostle. Get it? He's like, in this time, kind of like a back to the future. But anyway, so you have access to it. Not only easy access to it, that you can read it, because ever since Gutenberg came around, like we were able to distribute the Bibles, and that's a blessing. You literally, probably just for the last 20 years, have the Word of God with you on your person at all times, or at least can. That's new. That's brand new, where you could say, what did they say on Sunday again? It was Acts, 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 Acts. Where it's not like, where's my Bible? Oh, no, it's getting bleached on the visor of my car. Because that's what we do, right? We put it on the dashboard of the car. It's not like all of a sudden you have to, oh, I have to lug the Bible around. I need to find a smaller one. Like You can just pull out a Bible app and read the Word of God. These are unprecedented times. The Holy Spirit hasn't changed. He's just as powerful as he always was back in the first century church even now. But now we have the... The Word of God, access to the Word of God at all times. 
We have access to resources, so many works of the faith, so many books and sermons and commentaries and blogs and podcasts. Whole commentary sets that I had to pour money into right now are free on the internet. But that's fine. I'm, I'm okay. But it's true. There's like whole, I don't know if you've experienced that. There's whole sets of uh, Calvin's commentaries. I was one of the first things I bought early on, my first commentary sets. Now it's like free on a website. I'm like, really? Wow. Anyway, but you have access to resources about the Word of God, different people. And I know there's a lot of crud out there. That also means you have access to a lot of bad. But don't not do any work because what if I step in bad? Try. Just try. Try finding some commentary. Try finding something. Try doing a little extra time to study. You don't have to do a lot, but do a little extra. Do that cross-reference. I wonder what that means. Look up a word. Figure out what God's word says to you so you can better understand it and you can connect it. Oh, wow. Sabbath day's journey. I bet that has something to do with a restriction on the Sabbath because I've read about the Sabbath and there were like lots of restrictions. Oh, wow, I see. So just like when Moses held up the serpent in the wilderness, I remember something about that. I don't know everything, but I remember something about that. That's the illustration he's making. Amen. Don't, a, a little, just a little time, a little time in your Bible or maybe a little more time in your Bible where if you're spending a half an hour, you spend 45 minutes or if you spend an hour, you spend an hour and 20 minutes just taking a little more time to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit, of, just a little a little bit more than just, okay, read that, don't really get it, trust that the Lord will teach me that one day if Pastor Peter or Pastor Brad decide to teach me on it. Father in heaven, please bless my day and help my coin tosses go well, amen. <laughs> but see, if you're not regularly reading your Bible, you're basically living your life with the Lord with just about the same certainty as a coin toss. And God doesn't speak through the coin toss anymore because he told you everything he has to say in his word. So what about you? This is an amazing time to be a Christian. What are you doing about it? You don't ever have to be without the presence of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. You technically don't ever have to be without the Word of God. You might not be flipping a coin or rolling dice, but if you have as much access to God's will and you choose not to feed on it or not to absorb it, you're basically just flipping a coin as you go through life. We'll see how it goes. You can have more certainty in life, a surer foundation, a greater understanding of your circumstances and the world in which you live if you listen to what God has to say. And he's told you what he has to say in his word. And finally, we have the privilege of being part of the church, the family of God that we're reading about throughout the book of Acts, being established to give and receive support, prayer, encouragement, and help when needed. So I just want to encourage you to consider what is one thing you can do literally this week, one thing you can do to take advantage of the unprecedented, virtually unlimited access you have to God the Holy Spirit, Christ the Word, and the people of God he has surrounded you with. Where in your life are decisions maybe still a coin toss? Maybe where in your life uh, are you perhaps not engaging with the unbelievable blessings of having the Holy Spirit within us and the Word of God right here in front of us and on our persons at all times? Maybe you haven't asked for the help of another church family member in thinking through a difficult life situation or asking them just to pray with you. Maybe asking them just to pray with you and for you because you need help that you know that they can't provide, but you know that God can because with God, what is impossible? Nothing is impossible 
with God. And so you engage another member of the family of God, another church family member, and say, pray for me. I'm in a bad way. Pray for me. I'm down. Pray for me. I need some help. I reached out to a few different people who were really close to me because I was just really, really down earlier this week. I was down about something I did and felt really stupid about it and then tried to repent of it, but it didn't seem like it was well-received. And so I reached out and I asked someone to pray for me, and I was so encouraged. I was prayed for, and I was encouraged by someone else who also said, yeah, me too. Not me too and get over it, life's tough, build a bridge, you know, get a straw and suck it up. Not that, but like, oh, wow, yeah, that's hard. I've been there. I've I've been there in different ways. I know that that's hard. And then to receive prayer and to be reminded from the word of God that I'm valued not because of me, but because of what God has done for me. These are means of grace that we should be tapping into. And may God show us the greatness of what it means to be a Christian so we might sense the power he's promised us in our lives for all things that pertain to life, godliness, and being the witnesses that he's called us to be because of the spirit of power that he's given us. Father in heaven, we come before you grateful for the time that we get to spend in your word, thankful for the uh, example that we have before us, the reminders, Lord, that you even had people following you very, very closely. Perfect you, perfect Jesus. People who followed you, you were the perfect example. You never made a mistake when teaching. You did amazing and miraculous things, and they turned their back on you. We're reminded, Lord, of the hardness of even our own hearts, and we thank you for calling us to light. Thank you for replacing our hearts of stones with hearts of flesh. And Lord, help us to be prayerfully patient and trusting you with the people whom we love so much, but we know do not love you. And we pray once again, Lord, would you do a work in them even now. Lord, plant a seed, do a little something in your process of sanctification or process of salvation and calling them to you. And Lord, we pray that we would look to you, the Holy Spirit in us, and the word of God before us for our guidance and for our strength as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.